Let's pray together, Father. Thank you so much for Neartown Church. This is your church. This is uh, a part of your church in the city of Houston. God, we know that your spirit is at work here in this great city in a way like has never been seen before. God, we know that your spirit has worked the miracle of regeneration more times in the last 30 years than in the past 2,000 years of the church. And here, God, you've brought the nations here to this city. God, I pray for Neartown Church that they will walk fully in the calling that you've called them to, that each one of these members of this body will see themselves on mission to, to make the mission of Christ the mission of their lives. I pray for Russell, God, bring him and his team back here safely. God, uh, bless his wife, bless his children, bless his family. And God, we pray for ourselves, not just the city, because we're opening up your word. And God, we want to be transformed by it. God, we want to see the, the gospel on display in this letter to the church at Corinth from the Apostle Paul, knowing that it's a letter to us as well. God, give us hearts that are ready to receive your word implanted, that will be transformed minds prepared to be renewed by your word. We pray for this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Thank you so much for having me today. I've got two of my three sons with me, Isaiah and Elijah, here on the front row. So I'm a father of three small boys, so that means that I spend a good amount of my time on the trampoline wearing a foam infinity gauntlet, uh, wrestling around with these guys, pretending to be Thanos, and of course, they're, of course, one of the Avengers. And when we're not monkeying around on the trampoline, we're watching Avengers movies. Uh, show of hands, anybody watching that stuff? Yeah, a lot of you. So uh, one of the movies in particular is part two of the Avengers movies. It's called The Age of Ultron. And there's a scene in that movie, most of you it looks like are familiar, where all of the Avengers are taking turns trying to lift Thor's hammer. If you don't know about this, nobody can lift Thor's hammer but Thor. Uh, Thor says it's because they're all not worthy. And so they're all trying, you know, and, and just giving it their best, and, and nobody's able to lift this hammer. And so Tony Stark, who's Iron Man, he says, well, I've got a theory. I think it's probably something with fingerprints. If you don't have Thor's fingerprint, you're not going to be able to lift it. And, and Thor tells them, well, I've got a theory. You're just all not worthy. And just as, as they're kind of joking and laughing about it, they don't realize that uh, this robotic supervillain has entered the room with them, and he's standing there listening to them. So suddenly, they hear Ultron speaking, and he says, Worthy, how could you be worthy? You're all killers. And this is the same light that the Apostle Paul is shining onto our hearts and to the hearts of the Corinthian church and 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you've got your Bible, turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and what he's showing us is that we're all natural born killers. Like this is what we are able to do, just, 
just by nature. We're going to see words used to describe our actions like this. Being a stumbling block, destroying our brother, sinning against our brother, wounding him. We do this quite naturally. And so what we see Paul doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is the same thing that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. Who's familiar with the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is on a mountainside preaching to the masses and in chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, You've heard that it, it was said, Thou shalt not kill. And whoever kills will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says you fool, whoever calls your brother a fool, is going to have to stand before the council, the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, he uses this, this Greek word called moros. We get the word moron. Like whoever looks at your brother and says, you moron, you idiot. And this world's full of, you ever do that in traffic? The world's full of idiots. I had a guy uh, on the way here, coming down from the woodlands, driving up behind me as close as he could get, shooting the bird. I didn't tell my sons because I didn't want them to, to freak out, but shooting the bird at me, you know, and there's this, this uh, thing that rises up in, in us that says, there's a bunch of idiots. I'm surrounded by morons. And so there's this, there's this pride that, is, that just naturally wells up in, in all of our hearts that thinks that we're smarter than everyone else, that thinks that other people don't have enough value for us to invest our lives in them. So G, the Apostle Paul is just, just building upon what Jesus has already taught to the church. And so we're, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I get the, the blessing of sort of jumping in on what y'all are already doing as a church. And so you probably got a little bit better background fresh in your minds than I do. But imagine Jesus' words echoing in the mind of Paul as he's writing to the Corinthian church. Okay, whoever says to his brother, the first word, when, when you call someone a fool, it's the word raka. And Charles Spurgeon says that the motivation behind using that term is to uh, kill a man in his reputation. You want other people to see that this is an idiot. And then he uses the word moros, and Spurgeon says the motive for calling someone a moron is to kill him in his worth, to take away his self-worth. And here Paul is writing, and he's saying this, that a lot of you have knowledge, a lot of you know a lot of stuff. You certainly have a good understanding of, of, of grace and how that works and how we're not saved by works and that uh, God loved me enough to send a son to, to die for me. But if you look with me at, at the first, few, first couple of verses here, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. A lot of us know a lot of stuff, but we don't know what we ought to know if we're not, if we're not loving. So here's the situation. In verses 4 through 8, Paul explains it, but I'm going to move quickly because I want to emphasize the last part of our, our passage There's Christians 
who have been recently saved and they have come out of idolatry. So a regular practice for these Christians before they were saved was to worship idols and they would eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. So so now this animal that had been sacrificed to an idol was prepared as a meal and by celebrating that meal, by eating that meal, it was an act of worship to this idol. Now, Paul had been teaching that there's really nothing to those idols, that they're imaginary. They're not, they're not actually gods. They're not actually lords. They're nothing. And Paul would himself eat, eat that sort of meat that had been sacrificed to an idol because he understood that there was nothing to it really, that it's just meat and it's actually a gift from God. But these people were struggling over it. Now, Paul refers to them as weaker brothers. They hadn't grown to the spot where they understood, hey, this is just a gift from God. So when they thought of eating food that had been sacrificed to an idol, that's bringing me right back into the worship of these idols. Now, there were believers in the Corinthian church who were saying, man, there's nothing to that. I'm going to go ahead and, and enjoy my meal Even though I know that these brothers and sisters over here are struggling over this. That when they see me do this, they think that I am participating in idol worship. But this is my right. There's nothing to this. And they weren't having compassion on these people who were struggling over the idea of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. So I want you to look with me at verse 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now he says this. He says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Okay, what, what right is this that he's speaking of? We see it in verse 8. Eating this food that had been sacrificed to idols. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do eat. We're no better off if we do. Notice he's saying that it's not a sin for a Christian to eat this this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. The act of eating the meat in and of itself isn't a sin. There's nothing wrong with it. But he says this, he says in verse 9, you need to take care that as you exercise this right, that you're not somehow becoming a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? See, we're in America, so we're, we're definitely all about our rights. You know, some of us have a, a sign in our yard, perhaps, right now with uh, a political uh, candidate's name on it, whether Republican or, or Democrat. And this is our right To put that sign out there. But have we considered the possibility that we're taking uh, the mission of a political candidate or the mission of a political party and saying that this mission is actually of greater value to me 
than the mission of Christ in this world. Because in a sense, though I might be standing with my front door open saying, come in and sit at my table and let me know you and serve you and love you and tell you about the goodness of experiencing Jesus Christ. Are we not digging a moat, though, around our home by exercising certain rights? I feel like that's similar to what was going on in in that context, even though nobody's struggling over eating a meal from an animal that was offered to an idol in our context. But but this sort of thing is like, you know, here we are voicing our our ideals, our thoughts, our preferences over social media or in uh, conversations at the workplace, not even caring that we are alienating people from what should be the greatest mission of our life, and that is to help people see glory in the face of Jesus, to help people experiencing the saving grace of a relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to, like these people, because we have knowledge, because we have certain rights, because we can, and these things in and of itself aren't sins to support one or support the other or to prefer this or to prefer that. Those things in and of themselves aren't sins, but we're unwilling to lay down any sort of rights of ours for the sake of someone else who's struggling over whether or not to believe the claims of Jesus Christ. And we never look at Jesus and say, hold on, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be clutched, to be used to his own advantage. But he emptied himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had every right, every claim to come in and just sort of bulldoze his will into, uh, into the world, into uh, the reality of humanity. But he laid those rights down. And this is the issue that Paul has with the Corinthian church. That the, they would rather trample over People that need to experience the love and mercy and encouragement of the gospel. But the Corinthians, and I believe a lot of the time, we look at the love and mercy and grace and encouragement of the gospel and believe that God wants to show that to us. And we don't take a step further and say, but God wants to show that through us. We stop at, yes, God wants me to experience the freedom and deliverance and goodness of the gospel. This is to benefit me. He's showing it to me, but we don't take a step further and say he wants to show it through me, not just to me. Let's look at verse 11 and 12, because Paul gets more and more serious as he goes. In verse 11, and so by your knowledge... This weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. It's not too strong of language to say that we're all killers. Jesus did this in Matthew 5. And Paul, look at the words he's saying. We're destroying a brother by doing things that in and of themselves aren't even sins. Because we have knowledge and we have these these rights of ours, as he says in verse 9. And we're not taking into account the, 
the, the fragility of weaker brothers and sisters. Instead, we're just concerned about ourselves. And we're destroying people. These ones for whom Christ died. By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Now, this is the third time Paul's mentioned this sort of thing. In Romans, twice, he says, Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What's he want to get across to us? And that is the gospel. The one for whom Christ died. He wants us to think about what is the essence of the gospel. By your knowledge, a person is destroyed. This person for whom Christ died. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God walked into the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you grew up going to church in Sunday school, you recall this story. And it went something like this, that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. God had warned them and said, you have everything you need right here in the garden. I'm going to provide for all of your needs. But they believed what the serpent told them rather than what God had promised them. So they both ate of the fruit of the tree. And as soon as they did, the warnings that God had given them, which is, Death will enter into the world. The day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And so God then in Genesis chapter 3 comes stomping into the garden. This is the way we recall it from Sunday school. To cast them out of the garden. To pronounce a curse upon the world. And say, why did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And we often neglect the promises that God came into the garden to make in Genesis chapter 3. Do you recall those? In Genesis chapter 3, here God is coming and he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the evening breeze, because he delighted to have fellowship with mankind. And here he knows what had happened. He calls out to Adam. And as soon as they come out from behind the tree that they were hiding behind, he starts making promises to them. And he says that from the woman's offspring is going to come a man who is going to crush the head of that serpent. See, the same way that our parents did when we were making a mess of things when we were younger, okay? Our parents loved us hopefully enough to say, I want to try to make this right, right? When my boys get into trouble and make mistakes, I want to step in and help them fix the problem. I want to solve the problem for them, and that's what God was promising to do. I'm going to send my son, born of this woman, who's going to crush the head of that serpent. And then he goes and he clothes their, their shameful nakedness, right, by taking the life of an animal. And he made clothing out of skins. They're an, a picture of the gospel, these promises that God had made. Because what had happened? He had made them in his image, and he said that it was very good. Here, Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, made in Jesus' own image, right? The scriptures say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Mankind was made in the image of Jesus, but that image got wrecked by sinful disobedience. Our sin caused this perfect image that God delighted in and said it was very good. Here, it'd been marred. It's distorted. It's ruined by our sin and our disobedience. The essence of the gospel 
is that God has promised that Jesus will, in the gospel, restore that marred image. He's going to make us look like Jesus again. He's going to restore what was shattered, what was broken. He's going to give us back our dignity, our worth that that was lost in the fall. That is the essence of the gospel, is that our dignity has been stripped away. And Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, is restoring that dignity and making us look like him again. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you call your brother Raka Moros, stupid idiot, you're in danger of hellfire, Jesus said. Because when you don't value your brother or sister, when you exercise your own rights without giving conscience to a weaker brother or sister who's struggling, then we're saying that We don't value what Jesus values. We are, in a sense, warring against Christ and and raging against his reconciling purposes, his redemptive purposes. And this is the issue that the Apostle Paul is taking up with the Corinthians. It seems as though they wrote in a letter to him and he's answering when he says, Now concerning food that's been offered to idols... Now, I want to be sensitive also because though many of us, certainly myself, are guilty of not valuing my brothers and sisters enough to give up my own rights for their sake, many of us have been on the other end. Many of us have been wounded and sinned against and destroyed And for those of us who've been on the receiving end of that, who've been trampled over by believers, I want to tell you that the gospel says that you're valuable. Christians don't always represent their Christ well. You have value and you have worth and you have dignity in Jesus' eyes enough that he would lay down his life for you in order to restore that dignity and that value and that worth. Jesus was willing to lay down his life for you. Charles Spurgeon says that my entire theology can be condensed to four words. Christ died for me. And I want you to be able to say that as well. Even if you've been on the receiving end of a Christian who sees the gospel as something that is being shown to him, not shown through him or her. I was watching uh, that Mr. Rogers documentary. Anybody ever seen that? That'll make you cry if you're not careful. You've got to be careful watching that one. Mr. Rogers says, those who make you feel less than who you are, that's the greatest evil. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants the church at Corinth to understand, is that people have value. Which people? All people, every person that you've ever seen, every person that you've ever encountered, that person that lives a couple doors down from you, that's your least favorite neighbor, Jesus loves them and laid down his life for them. And then he placed, he loves them so much that he placed a Christian on their street, an ambassador of his that can, 
know that person and love them and serve them and bring them into the life of the body of Christ. You're that Christian. And so the Apostle Paul is telling us that we have to live with that in mind. And that requires that there's some things that aren't even sins that we have to be willing to lay down and say, I'm not going to do that. Because I'm going to put a needless obstacle between me and that person. And it's going to stop me from being able to carry out the mission of Christ. And that is to see this person come into a redeeming relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he starts out this chapter. Let me tell you something. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. The disobedience of the first Adam made us killers. But the obedience of the last Adam makes us builders, showing the gospel not just to us, but showing the gospel through us. Will you pray with me? Father, there's an infinite number of applications to this message, to this word from Paul. And God, this is a very delicate line that we walk as well because we don't ever want to push uh, the body of Christ into um, legalism or anything oppressive. Uh, God, we want want to walk in Christian liberty. We want to experience freedom. At the same time, God, we want to uh, be reminded that Our greatest allegiance is to Christ and his mission and that he loves people and and he's restoring value and dignity and worth to people. And the way that he's chosen to do it is through his church. A, A church doesn't have its own mission. The mission of God has a church and we're your church, God. Neartown is your church. To an ever-increasing number of people here inside the loop that are lost, that don't know you, Lord, that have had terrible experiences with Christians and with churches. And every day on uh, social media and on their street and in their workplace, they're seeing a, a version of Christianity that's that's not honoring Christ and not carrying the gospel. And God, you've got, but you've got near town church that you've placed here. That I believe is, is willing to love and serve and lay down their preferences and their privileges and their rights in order to see the lost become found in order to see people that are broken and hurting and lonely, experiencing the hope, the lasting hope that only the gospel can give. Lord, I pray for Neartown. Pray for Russell. And I pray that your spirit will clothe them with power and make them courageous. And God, all these areas of our heart that are still calloused and rough and all the areas, God, where, where we lack intentionality with the, the people in our lives, God, I just pray that you will do a work there. 
God, that you'll continue to shape us, conform us into the image of Jesus. Make what he values what we value. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.